Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Previously on There Goes the Neighborhood. I talked with a guy, a rich man, you know, and he say, I give you 17, this is a lot of money. Say, no, I know, I know when to move. Everything destroyed, you know. Uh, demolition, like a demolition. And then change the lock downstairs. As soon as possible, we saved whatever things we could from the streets. We were shocking. She went through a shock, you know. I'm feeling very bad. You know, memories, you know. This memory is for me more important, you know. This is also a story of displacement. Even though we've won in court and there's no question that we will continue to fight and be victorious in this battle, there is still a lot that's also lost too. My life never gonna same like before. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. I'm Kai Wright. I'm an editor at The Nation magazine. And today, my WNYC colleagues and I start by once again looking backward to 9-11. Because that's really where you got to go to understand the piece of the gentrification process that we're going to explore today. It it, it does not appear that there's any kind of an effort up there yet. Now remember, oh my God. Oh my God. That looks like a second plane. The attacks worsened a recession that began in early 2001, bringing the roaring 90s to an abrupt halt. We recovered due in no small part to the housing market. But here's the thing many people didn't notice. That recovery, it never arrived in many, many black neighborhoods. From the 2001 recession straight through to the 2008 crash, people in a lot of black communities were still struggling. And that booming housing market was part of the problem. A growing family with a lot of debt. A young couple with no down payment. A business owner whose income was hard to document. Every one of them was turned down for a home loan by three different lenders. I'm with Countrywide, and I got them all approved. So if you need a lender who One of the lasting myths of the housing bubble is that it expanded black home ownership by giving people mortgages they couldn't afford. That old saw that poor people got excited and bought too much house. It's not true. The reality is that the vast majority of subprime loans were not for new homes. Rather, they were refinance loans. Mortgage brokers worked neighborhoods with old houses, often owned by senior citizens, and made offers that felt like lifelines to families in which people had been out of work since 2001. They'd point out your crumbling stoop or drooping gutters and say, hey, I can help you fix that. I know times are tough, but you're sitting on all this money. I'll get you a subprime loan. It'll be dirt cheap. And don't worry, we'll roll you into a more conventional loan before the interest rate explodes. Individual borrowers churn through four and five loans this way. This was the kindling for Wall Street securities fire until it burnt down the whole economy. The funders warned of worrisome parallels between the current crisis and the Great Depression and expect this recession to be unusually long and severe. So what does all this have to do with gentrification? Well, foreclosure is a big, big part of the process. 
Nearly 10% of mortgages in the New York City area are either in foreclosure, are seriously delinquent, and likely to land there soon. That rate is second only to Miami. And Brooklyn and Queens are the hotspots, which makes them gold mines for developers. There are two kinds of foreclosure flips. One is the sort everybody is happy to see, bank-owned properties that have been sitting in decay for years. But the other kind, the kind that's mostly left out there now, those are the ones nobody likes to hear about. They're not families who are underwater and homes worth less than their debt. That idea is a relic of the recent past. These families are in extremely valuable homes. They just have loans and bills they still can't manage. Many have been barely holding on ever since the crash. Christy Peel, who leads the Center for New York City Neighborhoods, says gentrification is making these people lose grip. We've been really working hard at keeping folks in place, and it seems that in a lot of these neighborhoods, there's been no daylight between stabilization and gentrification. Property values go up, and taxes increase, and pressure to sell at a loss intensifies. In a lot of ways, they're right back where they were when those subprime brokers were knocking on doors. Now we're seeing some of the same predatory actors trying to get people who may not know the full value of their homes or their rights and options uh, to sign over their property for either less than the value or unknowingly sign it over for nothing. It's people like Rick and Annette Evanson. Remember them from episode two? The Evansons bought their house in East New York back in 1978, and four generations of them have called it home. Rick has owned it since the mid-2000s, and like many Brooklyn homeowners, he's had trouble keeping up. When I met him at the house one night, he explained the pressure he's been under ever since the house was listed in foreclosure. I had one guy who says, yeah, we heard your house is in foreclosure. Listen, I'd be willing to take it. I'll give you 50000 The guys actually write checks. Andre, right? They write me these checks. How much the checks? $20,000, $50,000? Yeah. They All stand right? out here in front of your house and write a check. No, they send the checks to my home in the envelopes. If I take the check, that means that I agree to, I'll take this check and I'll walk away. He'd be walking away from all of his debt and all of his headaches, but he'd also be walking away from decades worth of hard-won family wealth. Wealth is closely tied to homes for all Americans, but for black America, the two things are synonymous. We're much less likely to have stock investments or jobs with pensions, so homes are it. And the foreclosure crisis wiped out a lot of people. That's why the racial wealth gap is larger today than it has been since we've kept track of it. And that's one more thing that's at stake when we talk about flipping foreclosed homes. Trickery, fraud, and legal deception. We'll talk about all of this today. It's showing up all over Brooklyn. It's even the source of a pitched legal battle over an eighth of an acre of land in Prospect Lefferts Gardens. First, reporter Jim O'Grady tells the story of the sale of a Bed-Stuy brownstone in which a family may have been swindled out of their inheritance. He begins at a workshop on deed fraud held by the city's public advocate. Good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon. My name is Letitia James, and I am your public advocate at your service. Her office is holding this workshop. Almost everyone here is black, like her. Most are homeowners who've lived in central Brooklyn for years. We, we are holding this event today because what we are witnessing is the greatest transfer of wealth in central Brooklyn since Reconstruction. What does that mean, Tish? It means we are seeing more people lose their property, which represents wealth. Wealth. Whether or not the stat about Reconstruction is true, it is a fact that New York City is seeing 10,000 foreclosure filings a year on one-to-four-family homes like the Brownstone we'll be looking at. 
That is down from the high of 35,000 foreclosures after the economic crisis of 2008, but still double the rate from before 2008. But there's something else wrapped inside James's statement, the feeling among Brooklyn families who own residential buildings that this white-hot market is turning them into marks, that somewhere a scammer is drawing a target on their home and figuring out how to trick them out of it. They will invite themselves in your home and present themselves as your friend. In 2015, Bed-Stuy resident Tia Struther didn't get a knock on her door at home. She got a phone call. It was a representative from a real estate agency. They mentioned that they uh, had saw through public record that my grandmother's house might have been uh, involved in a fraudulent deed conveyance. It was actually her great-grandmother's house that might have been involved in a fraudulent deed conveyance. 446 Halsey Street in Bedstock. Three stories, red brick, oak tree out front. It sits in the center of central Brooklyn. Tia lived there for years as a kid, and she believes that the call she got about it was from a scammer. She made herself seem like she was some kind of public official. The caller was not a public official. That's something a scammer will say to keep people on the phone. And Tia suspected that. She works for a Brooklyn nonprofit that advocates for public housing residents. So she is savvy about government and real estate. Tia says the caller offered free legal advice, and in exchange, Tia was supposed to agree in writing to sell 446 Halsey Street to the caller. And Tia thought, no, that doesn't sound right. That's not normal. That's not a normal practice. So in the the course of the conversation, raised a few red flags for me. Red flags. You hear that phrase a lot when you delve into the maneuvering to buy a slice of Brooklyn. Or if that doesn't work, maybe steal someone else's slice. But then Tia pulled a move of her own. I had her email me all of the scans of the, uh, the public records that she had found. Um, and I told her that I would take a look at them and I would get back to her. Um, I had no intentions on getting back to her. I really just wanted her to give us whatever information she had found so that I can take it and figure out what was going on. Here's what was going on. Tia's great-grandmother, Nellie Norris, had sold 446 Halsey Street for zero dollars. The sale occurred the year before, in 2014. The company that bought it is called 446 Halsey Street Corporation. And here's why. Real estate buyers routinely set up a separate company for each property they buy, then name that company after the property. That does two things. One, it limits the buyer's liability. So if a deal goes bad, debt collectors can't go after his other properties. And two, it makes it hard for the buyer to be found by regulators or unhappy tenants or even people who just want to check out the buyer's track record. But the question here is, how does a brownstone in Bed-Stuy, one of the most desirable neighborhoods in all of Brooklyn, sell for zero dollars? Tia and her great-grandmother, Nellie Norris, both came to my office. That's lawyer Anthony Moen. I was able to review the same documents that Tia had received by email. And he found more online. They're public records. They're publicly available. Find them where? Uh, at the City Register website, or ACRIS, the Automated City Register Information System. Side note. It's become easier to find all kinds of real estate records online, so the system is more transparent. It's how websites like Curbed are able to, you know, report to us that Uma Thurman is selling her Gramercy Park co-op for $6.25 million. But Anthony Moen says there's a dark side. Public records can reveal vulnerable homeowners to scammers. 
sometimes it's very targeted when they see that there are homeowners who are facing foreclosure. Tia and Moen were sitting at her kitchen table, which was covered with documents. The three of us were in her bedsty apartment, where Tia lives with her husband, two kids, and a cat named Spider-Man. Yeah, she's quite a friendly cat. Spider-Man's a she? Yes. <laughs> our 10-year-old named her. Oh. It took hours of conversation and then follow-up research to figure out what happened with the sale of 446 Halsey Street, which is only a few blocks from Tia's home. It's a tangled mess, but here it goes. Nellie Norris, originally from North Carolina, bought 446 Halsey Street in 1976. The records don't show a sale price, but Tia says it was about $80,000. Nellie worked as a house cleaner and raised her daughter Audrey in the house. Audrey had a son named Eric, and Eric is Tia's father. Remember those names, Audrey and Eric, because the sale of this building has put them on opposite sides of a family feud. Eric has a wobbly-sounding phone, but here's how he describes growing up at 446 Halsey Street. Everybody in my family pretty much lived in my house. Everybody. I can remember being a little kid with my cousins and them, and we would be upstairs, and they would be having their parties and stuff downstairs on the weekend, or playing cards and stuff like that, or whenever we had cookouts, everything would actually start at my grandmother's house. Nellie threw a lot of parties and let all kinds of family members live in her home, sometimes for years. She also made side cash by running a social club on the ground floor. In 1989, Nellie was 64. Starting then, she refinanced her mortgage 10 times over 20 years. The amount she borrowed ranged from $7,500 to $75,000. In recent years, she also fell behind on her property taxes and water bill. In 2009, Nellie was now 84, and the principal on her loan was $183,000. Not great, but normally not catastrophic. But then she took out a reverse mortgage. You may have seen commercials for these products aimed at seniors. Because if you're 62 years or older and own your own home, then join hundreds of thousands of other Americans who have used a reverse mortgage as a safe, effective financial tool. Anthony Moen gives you the basics of reverse mortgages. A new lender will step in to to lend them that money against the equity in the house. And typically what it means is that they don't really have to make a mortgage payment anymore. They're basically allowed to live out the end of their lives in the property just on the equity remaining. These sorts of products can be controversial because they sometimes have predatory terms that build the debt up quickly. By 2010, the debt on 446 Halsey was $483,000 up $300,000 in one year. That's when the buyer showed up at Nellie Norris's door. Remember Tia's father, Eric, and Eric's mother, Audrey? This is where Audrey and Eric come back into the story. Tia says investigators from the city sheriff's office told her that it was Audrey who got Nellie to agree to a sale price of $0, with the buyer assuming the building's debt. And that buyer seems to have promised Audrey $50,000 once Nellie dies. The sheriff's office wouldn't comment, but the buyer's lawyer, Jeffrey Goldstein, defends the deal. As far as I know, the sale is 100% above board. We looked at comparable properties in the neighborhood, and we talked to brokers. They estimated the value of 446 Halsey Street at $1.3 million. So even with half a million dollars of debt, 
selling it for nothing would seem to be a bad deal. Eric recalls talking to his mother, Audrey, who was at the closing with Nellie. That's why you sold Granny House. This is Granny House. Granny ain't dead. Jeffrey Goldstein, the lawyer for the buyer, says Nellie will be able to spend the rest of her life in the house, and she's 91 now. I called Audrey, Nellie's daughter, to ask about the $50,000 side payment that her family says the buyer offered for Audrey's part in the sale. Audrey said, Tia needs to stop, then hung up the phone. Goldstein won't comment on the payment or give any numbers related to the transaction, so I asked if I could talk to the purchaser. Can you talk to the purchaser? Um, No. Both Tia and Eric say the $50,000 offer to Audrey was not put in writing, and neither of them thinks she'll ever see that money. And Audrey will definitely have to leave for 46 Halsey when her mother, Nellie, dies. But here's the really troubling thing about this sale. None of the public records connected to it, none of the ones we could find, at least, none of them gives the name of a lawyer for Nellie Norris. And that suggests she sold her home without one. Lawyer Anthony Moen has a problem with that. As an attorney, I would never want to be a part of that transaction where one side, the other side, was unrepresented, and I'm representing somebody who's getting a million-dollar property for nothing. It just raises so many red flags. Jeffrey Goldstein says he was at the closing with Nellie and Audrey. They knew exactly what they were doing. Um, They had counsel at that closing, and it was explained to them ad nauseum, ad infinitum. They knew exactly what they were doing. However, once again, what you've stumbled upon here is a family fight. Yeah, it, it is a family fight. But when I called Goldstein back and asked for the name of the lawyer who represented the women, he wouldn't talk on tape and said he was too busy to provide it. Tia says her great-grandmother has dementia. There's no way she knew what was going on at the closing. In fact, Tia says Nellie no longer even knows that her home has been sold. And lawyer or not, the point of this story is that in 2009, Nellie Norris owed $183,000 on a home that was probably worth a million dollars. Six years later, when that home was worth even more, she sold it for nothing. So some combination of bad financial decision-making plus a buyer's opportunism and maybe deception made that happen. And now another bed family has lost both property and wealth. Tia says she told her grandmother, Audrey, that's part of why she laments the sale of this house that has given shelter to five generations. I talked a lot about the importance of black ownership and maintaining black ownership um, and how um, valuable our neighborhoods are and how oftentimes we don't see the value in it and until it's taken away from us. Tia and her lawyer, Anthony Moen, say there is a state law that allows them to sue to get the deed back, claiming the sale was a scam. But they would need Audrey's cooperation, and at this point, that doesn't seem likely. For much of America, the dust has settled from the 2008 housing crash. We now know that the most vulnerable homeowners were elderly black women like Nellie, who'd owned family homes for decades but got pulled into exploding interest rate loans. The lost wealth is staggering. One study found that between the recession and 2013, Black America lost half of its wealth. Half. In places like Brooklyn, 
a lot of the other half may be up for grabs again. The word gentrification prompts a lot of reactions, and we're hearing from people. People are talking, sharing their stories. Hello, my name is Terry Bennett. About 20 years ago, as I remember, you know, I had just moved to the south side of Williamsburg, and I was sitting on my stoop with a friend of mine when one of our neighbors came over and asked, you know, I really need to ask you guys a question. There's something I don't understand. How come when people like you come into the neighborhood, all the rents go up, but if you look at you guys, you look like you don't have any money at all? And I looked down and looked at what we were wearing, which was pretty much our uniform of ripped jeans, you know, baggy sweatshirts, destroyed sneakers. How is your changing neighborhood affecting your everyday life? Call us at 646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. We've collaborated with the WNYC Data News team to create two-minute animations that describe the most common scams and how they work. You should check them out. You can go to wnyc.org slash neighborhood. As the gentrification tsunami sweeps through Brooklyn, scammers have been moving in behind it. As we just heard, they often prey on homeowners with money troubles and the elderly. Other scams include charging a homeowner thousands of dollars for filling out worthless paperwork or collecting high fees for lawsuits that are supposed to lower mortgage costs but have no chance of succeeding. Now, Jim O'Grady is back with another story of deed fraud. New York City has thousands of vacant lots and abandoned buildings, but each one has a deed that names the owner, like 237 Maple Street in the Prospect Lefferts Gardens neighborhood. Years ago, a family home stood on that lot. It burned down, and the lot was seemingly abandoned. Jim tells us what happened next. Some lots look like a cavity in the mouth of a city block, and some, like the one at 237 Maple Street in Prospect Lefferts Gardens, are miniature Edens. In the summer of 2013, about 100 neighbors waded into the waist-high weeds and dragged out bathtubs, car parts, all kinds of garbage. They built raised beds and sowed the soil with flour and vegetable seeds. And then they named it the Maple Street Community Garden. Cheryl Durant says it quickly became a gathering spot, especially the picnic table beneath the weeping willow tree. We have a potluck or anything. Food is always on this table. I mean, it's just a congregation space. But early on, Durant and her fellow gardeners discovered from city records that the lot was privately owned. They say they reached out to the owners but never heard back. Then on a weekday morning, Durant was sitting at the picnic table with her friend, Morel Lemaine. It was so peaceful. When I tell you, there was barely a breeze, and we're just sort of relishing, as we always would. You know, isn't this great, you know, what we've done here? They were talking about starting a summer camp at the garden when a black car drove up. And sort of parked aggressively. Out hopped Joe and Mike McConney. And they walked right over to us and said, get out. Get out. You're trespassing. Get off of this property right now. That's how the whole thing started. And so we looked at each other. You know, Cheryl and I take a look at each other like, what is this all about? And I said, and who might you be? They are the McConney brothers, and they have a deed to 237 Maple Street. The McConneys also have a history of using illegitimate signatures to claim disputed properties and selling predatory mortgages. In fact, they went to prison for three months in 2009 for forging property records and selling homes they didn't own. 
We called Joe and Mike McConney twice to get their side of the story. Okay, please hold. Sure. I Jim McGrady on the phone. Hello? So that didn't work. But several years ago, the producer of a film about the housing crisis called Subprimed phoned Joe McConney and asked him why he names his companies after government housing agencies like HPD and HUD. Was it to mislead people into buying toxic mortgages? Joe McConney answers, stupid, that's not my problem. If a client is stupid, that's not my problem. Morel Lemaine says that when she squared off with Mike McConaughey in the garden a year ago and asked him... And who might you be? His answer included curses and threats to bring in a backhoe. The day after that confrontation in the garden, contractors working for the brothers used crowbars to start tearing apart the wooden frames of the vegetable bed. Nancy Troiber, who lives next door, ran over and videotaped the scene, including her challenge to the workers. You are vandalizing the property. Please do not do that. The workers ignored her. Then the McConney showed up, followed by the police. The police are here. You need to show proof that you own this. You have not shown proof. You're vandalizing. The police asked the McConneys to produce a court order backing up their claim. They couldn't. So a commander told the workers to put away the crowbars or be arrested. The McConneys and their workers drove away. Then they sued. In early June, the brothers asked a housing court judge to slap a restraining order on the gardeners, who then had to scramble to find a lawyer. My name is Paula Siegel. I am the attorney representing the Maple Street Community Gardeners. Siegel is working pro bono to prevent the McConney's plan to build a five-story, 17-unit condo on the lot. Her first setback came last June, when the judge granted the restraining order and told the gardeners to stay off the land. Siegel convened an emergency meeting on folding chairs next to the garden and urged the group to appeal the decision. If we ask for a stay from the appellate division, then we have a way to say to them you can't do anything yet. They had another setback in early July when workers for the McConneys put up a chain-link fence and a padlocked gate. The tomatoes started sagging and Durant and LeMaine had to cancel their summer camp. Gardener Julia Stanett talked about the importance to her of this eighth of an acre. It just um, really meant a lot to me because just bringing the whole community together, it's just been wonderful. And it's, uh, you know, it's really sad that, um, you know, we can't come in here anymore. But at the end of last summer, the gardeners convinced the judge to lift the restraining order. About an hour after that, Siegel arrived at the garden gate and met up with Earl Bonus, who came with a bolt cutter. They each grabbed a handle and sliced through the chain. (laughs) The two sides continue to battle in state Supreme Court for this sliver of Brooklyn. The McConneys claim they bought the lot from two nephews of the couple who once owned it. But Paula Siegel has established, with the help of the Brooklyn DA, that the seller's social security number did not match his name. And she says the notary's name on the deed is illegible and their license number is missing, among other irregularities. She's concluded that the McConney's deed has signs of being fabricated. At a press conference, New York State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman said real estate booms invite fraud. The fact that the real estate market is so profitable has provided additional incentives for every type of scammer 
to come in and try and take advantage of it. So there Joseph Facito, the sheriff of the city of New York, tracks the number of fraud cases. We received 734 cases from the city register, something that raised a red flag that would indicate that this could potentially be deed fraud. Facito suspects many deed frauds go undetected and that the number is actually much higher. He then describes three warning signs that someone might be trying to cheat the system. The owner used one social security number, and when they're selling it, they're using another. Incorrect social security number. And then certain notary publics who have been known to be utilized in certain fraudulent deed practices, if we see their name pop up, we look at it. Sketchy notary. Selling property for far less than the market value. Like the $5,000 the McConnies say they paid for an eighth of an acre in central Brooklyn, where condo units sell faster than in Manhattan. That's an eyebrow-raising deal even for 2003, when the McConnies say they bought the property. Paula Siegel says all three conditions apply to Joe and Mike McConnie's claim on 237 Maple Street. But the McConnies say it's the gardeners who are acting illegally by squatting on their property. Both sides are still waiting on a decision from the state Supreme Court. But the gardeners have been gaining political allies. State Senator Jesse Hamilton, who represents the neighborhood, has submitted legislation to take the lot by eminent domain and make it parkland. He points to a study about green space in the city that ranked the area 45th out of 51 districts. It'll be tough to get eminent domain passed by the Republican-led state Senate. So there's a plan B raising more than a million dollars to just buy the property and make it parkland. And who might get that money if the plan works? D.W. Gibson, who's been following the court case, has the answer. The McConnies. That's right. The brothers who might have committed fraud to stake their claim to the property, who tried to force out the gardeners and sue them in court, could wind up richly rewarded for their deeds. I talked to Paula Siegel, the lawyer who's been fighting for the gardeners. If the money is gathered to buy the property... Whoever is actually the rightful owner of the property will get the money. And just who owns the land at 237 Maple Street remains the question before the court. Paula is still working to prove it's not the McConnies and their LLC, Housing Urban Development. If the Supreme Court determines that Housing Urban Development LLC are actually not the proper owner of this property and it belongs to the estate of Jermaine Curtin, then the city would be buying from the estate of Jermaine Curtin. But so far... Siegel and the gardeners haven't had any luck finding estate heirs. So we engaged an heir locator who um, spent some time putting together a family tree, and it looks like Jermaine Curtin, although she did not have any children of her own. She had nieces. Her sister Flossie had children, and uh, those children actually also had children. So living today, according to the forensic genealogist that we're working with, are two grandnieces who live in Georgia, and we have been trying to get in touch with them. I sent them a Christmas card. It all comes down to contacting one of Flossie's daughters. Paula has various phone numbers and addresses. She's been calling and writing letters for months. And based on the family tree from the forensic genealogist, Paula got the court to appoint an estate guardian. He, too, has been trying to get a response from the grandnieces. No luck. Paula's also working with city officials, including Deputy Brooklyn Borough President Diana Reyna, to determine how much the lot is worth. Because there were a unified front of residents, homeowners, 
to engage in protecting this garden that they have uh, invested time, money, energy. It became a park. Raina met with Siegel and they discussed possible price tags. One million dollars was floated, an early estimate. Then Raina said if the lot was worth one million dollars, they should budget something more like 1.5 million just to be safe. Falling short of a required purchase price, she said, could prove devastating. This is a complicated gambit involving multiple state and city agencies, perhaps a few private funders mixed in, all funneling money to the Parks Department to make the purchase. Reina concedes that it might not be possible to mount the effort again. So if eminent domain does not work, can we convince the Parks Department to purchase this lot with this funding that we have allocated? That becomes uh, what is, you know, a multi-pronged approach. Siegel still reaches out to Flossie's daughters. She's resorted to texting, and no matter how she phrases her messages, they always sound a bit like a scam. Miss Wilson, can you please call me back? I'm calling about a property in Brooklyn that it seems you have a claim to. It could be worth a lot of money. It's also a community garden. You could help save the garden and get some cash from the sale of the property to the government. I know it sounds unreal, but sometimes things are like that. Paula. I asked Paula to try calling, just once more to try her luck. Hello? Hi, is this Miss Wilson? Finally, after years of looking for heirs and months of making calls based on a possible family tree, Paula had someone on the line. Oh my god, I'm going to start crying. I'm so sorry. I've been working on this for years. Anyway, wait, so are you Hazel or Carol, first of all? Carol. But you have a sister named Hazel. Yes, my twin sister. Oh my god, you're the right people. That is like, that's an amazing, amazing, amazing start. After the initial shock, Paula composed herself and brought Jermaine Curtin's grandniece up to speed. And it actually looks like the whole property was the subject of a deed theft. Of somebody pretending that they had found um, your family members. So why are you saying that this house is so who owns the house? That's the that is the big question. So some it seems that some people may have stolen it. Paula explained to Carol that she had a court appointed lawyer. She told her about the Marcanis and their claim to the property. The city's records right now say they own it, but they say they bought it from Alan and Alexander Curtin. And those people I don't think they exist. And on the records, I don't know that name at all. I don't on the, but it's that's it, me. I just don't think they exist. So it's possible that um, you guys own this property, which is currently a community garden. And our hope is that what we'll find out is that the estate of Jermaine Curtin does own it, and then the city of New York will be able to buy it from you with money, and the garden will be able to be preserved. And you'll get some money. Um, Otherwise, these guys with the sketchy company are going to build luxury housing. Those are sort of the options. Carol talked about her memories of visiting Jermaine Curtin as a kid and how her father stayed at 237 Maple Street for a while with his sister. She said she did get an earlier letter from Paula, but dismissed it because it didn't seem real. Odd. I wasn't quite sure, but I did know, you know, in, in Brooklyn, on Maple Street, yeah, Jermaine Curtin, we used to visit her sometimes. Yes. Yeah.
I'm like, I, I'm speechless a little bit. I apologize. Um, I'm so glad to hear your voice. We will be talking. We're, this, is, this is a long fight, and I'm so glad that we're in it together. In it together. At least that's what the gardeners are hoping for. So the gardeners seem that much closer to becoming a permanent part of the neighborhood. But who knows what that neighborhood will look like? What becomes of a gentrifying community when longtime residents and new arrivals work together? When old investments meet new money? Find out next week on There Goes the Neighborhood. There Goes the Neighborhood is a production of WNYC Studios and The Nation magazine. It's recorded and mixed by Casey Means. That's me. With recording help from Wayne Schulmeister. A researcher is Sean Carlson. Terrence Blanchard composed our theme music. Thanks to our digital team, including Lee Hill, Delaney Simmons, Kevin France, Frank Reynolds, and Annie Shields. D.W. Gibson, Jim O'Grady, Kai Wright, and Rebecca Carroll contributed to the reporting and producing of this episode. Our editor and executive producer is Karen Frillman. Are you a black middle-class resident in a gentrifying neighborhood? Do you feel like the problem or the product? Call us at 646-783-9692 or write to us at wnyc.tumblr.com. Support for There Goes the Neighborhood has been provided by the Ford Foundation, Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the New York Community Trust, and the Economic Hardship Reporting Project.